Hello there, my name is Paul Taylor and this is the 60th episode of the Proverbs 1810 podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. And if you're saying that you know truth, if you're saying that you know what is truth, then you've got to have something to actually measure that against. Proverbs 1810 podcast. 25 feet, a thousand layers. How many millions of years did that take to form them? The answer is it took three hours. Proverbs 1810 podcast. This is the Proverbs 1810 podcast presented by me, Paul Taylor, in association with Proverbs 1810 Media. For all information about the podcast, including where to find the RSS feeds to put into your favorite podcasting software, please visit proverbs1810.org. Enjoy the show. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Why do the nations rage and fall, the people plot in vain against the Lord The kings of the earth they take their stand The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his chosen one To humble those who cast aside his law. He lays their cities to the ground. The walls are trampled to dust under the feet of the poor and the oppressed. 
never have the words of that important scripture seemed so appropriate as today. Um, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. All these uh, earthly rulers who think that they can uh, um, influence events, that they can sort events out, and they set themselves up as rulers. They take counsel together, and their counsel is against the Lord and against his anointed. And you may have noticed when I read that out, I actually said against his Messiah, because that is the word that is translated as anointed. This is referring to two people of the Trinity here, the Father and the Son. Uh, as we read later on in verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And uh, the, the, the way that the world is supposed to work is defined in the last verse, kiss the son. And the act of kissing is, um, it, this is not a romantic kiss, this is a, an act of obeisance. You fall on your face and you kiss the feet of the person who's there. That's what we're talking about. In other words, it's an act of worship. Worship the Son would be an acceptable translation. Lest he be angry. It's, it's hard to think, isn't it, of uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, being angry. But uh, the, um, he is angry with our sins. He's angry with the sins of the world. And uh, we who are worshippers of him, uh, he doesn't have that anger on us because we've repented and uh, we've trusted in him as our saviour. But for those who haven't, and particularly for the uh, worldly rulers, uh, the son will be angry with them. And it says, and you perish in the way, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. God's wrath will come quickly when uh, the tribulation comes along. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that's the word of hope there, that we who have recognized our sins, and recognize that he is angry with our sins, have repented, have bowed the knee to him, have bowed the knee to him, we've worshipped him, and therefore we've taken refuge in him. And we are to be blessed for that reason. So that's the, uh, the as I said, never has really these words been so significant and so important as they are today um, there's so much going on um, you know when you try and think of what's going on in the world today you have to try and look behind the scenes because the mainstream media is not giving us the story that is true the mainstream media is covering things up and we've talked a lot about that on this particular show and it's one of the reasons why I have taken to wearing a very plain little button or badge as we call them in England a very plain little button which is just a little circle and it's completely colored red and it symbolizes that I've been red-pilled to use a metaphor from the well-known film The Matrix it's very interesting I actually only watched The Matrix recently it's only about two months since I first watched The Matrix. I, I knew these um, um, metaphors, but it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And now I've watched the film and it makes complete sense to me. Um, because that's the way things are. The way the world is, is hidden. And it explains why there's so many people who seem to have been blue-pilled. Who cannot understand the world around them. They can't actually interpret what's going on in the world. And they don't see it through the lens of scripture. Which is how we're supposed to see it. Uh, there's a lot of things that I've come to see. Um, uh, that are different from what you might expect. 
in the last couple of years, I've realized that we are given so many false flags. And uh, I've defended a lot of the false flags in the past. And I've begun to realize that there's so many events where people were lying to us continually. They were, they were frequently lying to us. Um, one example of that, uh, you know, for years and years, um, being in a mainstream ministry, which was down the rabbit hole, so to speak, as far as uh, creation was concerned, they wouldn't accept the, uh, the norm as far as um, the theory of evolution is concerned. Uh, you know, that to me is what's helped lead me down other rabbit holes, such as the rabbit hole of climate change, realizing that climate change is a lie as well. Uh, that's been uh, very important to uh, understand that. But it's led me down other ones now, and I've seen so many now. Uh, for years in that particular ministry, I used to uh, uh, argue with people and, um, and really come down heavily on people who denied that uh, the moon landings had taken place, for example. But now I see that we've been lied to by the powers that be for so long. Uh, I no longer accept that the moon landings happened. It's, uh, it's a false flag. It was done there for political purposes because... Um, um, Kennedy, had, President Kennedy had uh, promised that uh, the United States would get someone to the moon and back again before the end of the decade, that is the 1960s. By about 1965, they fully realized that this was actually impossible. And uh, so it was clearly faked. And uh, there are so many reasons uh, that you can see that it was faked. Um, the, the, the various films that you can see... Um, I'm not talking about the sort of ruffling of flags. Yes, there are uh, perfectly valid explanations for that. There's other things I'm thinking of. Um, it wasn't possible with 1960s technology to do all the things that they said. The Saturn V rockets were not powerful enough to take someone to the moon. And uh, this is a technology that worked first time. No technologies worked first time. When people were going to the South Pole, they... Um, uh, they, there were several attempts, uh, there were so many failures, but eventually they got there, they set up scientific bases, and of course now we know that there are resources there, but they didn't know about those resources first of all when they went, they set up the bases there. Why are there no bases on the moon? Why has no one gone to the moon again from the United States? More to the point, why has no one gone from any other country? Because we know that it isn't possible. It's not possible to get out of that low Earth orbit with the technology we have, uh, because of the vast amounts of radiation there in the belts around the Earth, known as the Van Allen belts, for example. And if you say, well, you know, we've got the technology, well, why hasn't it been used again? Um, and NASA claimed that all that technology is gone, but, you know, it wasn't that complex compared to modern technology. Even if it had all gone, it wouldn't be that difficult to reproduce the 1960s technology. We, the, the long and short of this is, without I don't want to do an entire program on that because I haven't researched it at the moment, the points that I would want to make. What I would point out is that uh, governments around the world are lying to us. And it's important to understand that we are being lied to so that we can um, see the truth far more clearly. Well, now we need to continue looking at uh, what the Bible has to say about the uh, gifts of the Spirit. Um, this is particularly in view of the fact that there are some people um, 
whose theology I agree with on most points who are putting together a um, a movie which uh, declares that the gifts of the spirits have ceased and as I've tried to explain to you on a number of occasions their reason for doing this is not because you can find the cessation of the gifts in the Bible you cannot I'll qualify that somewhat. I think 1 Corinthians 13 clearly says that the gifts will cease. But as we saw in a previous episode, um, the date of the ceasing of the gifts from 1 Corinthians 13 is quite clearly uh, when the Lord returns. Uh, that's when the perfect comes about, not at the closing of the canon of Scripture. Uh, it's not, again, that I think the canon of Scripture is not closed. Uh, there is nothing else to be written in the Bible. Therefore, there is no new doctrine to come along. There is no new um, revelation. And here's the point. <clears throat> what I want to look at this, um, this in this episode is, what's the difference between prophecy in the New Testament and in the Old Testament? And there is a very clear difference. Now, one way that we can see the clear difference between the uh, the use of prophecy in the Old and the New Testament, um, apart from saying that the Greek word has a uh, that's translated prophecy has a wider meaning than the Hebrew word that's translated uh, prophecy, that's clear enough itself. Um, but there's more to it than that. And we need to have a look at uh, what's said about the uh, the use of prophecy in in worship. And clearly, with the the main um, passage where we're going to find that is First uh, Corinthians chapter fourteen. In verse twenty-four, we read, "But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all; he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you." But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Uh, I said that twice, so for some reason I've written it down twice, but it's worth saying twice. Um, what's happening with this unbeliever? First of all, we should see what this prophecy is about. Prophecy is to do with uh, God revealing things, God saying things. It's a foretelling of what God's got in mind. Um, but we've already said that the canon of Scripture is closed, so there is no new revelation. There's no new doctrines to come about. There's no uh, new epistle to be written. So any doctrine that would be based on a prophecy would show that that prophecy was wrong. But here you see in this passage, there's an unbeliever coming in and he's convicted by all. Why? Because the secrets of his heart are disclosed. It could be that a prophet is able to say something about what's going on in this person's heart because it is revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. Now this is the point, you see, that so many uh, cessationists don't believe that this can happen. So effectively they're saying that they do not believe in miracles. They don't believe that miracles can happen. They might say, well, God can do everything. God, is, God can do anything. God is sovereign. In practice, they don't believe that. Uh, they, they actually come across as people who are not believing. But um, this, you see, would, uh, would, would be uh, of great benefit where, where there's certain hidden things that could be brought to light. And, you know, 
I'm not going to base a, a theology on experience, but on another occasion, I think I can tell you some experiences that show that this works out. That does not mean that there's a new doctrine coming about. Okay, But what is happening is that existing doctrines are being applied to the soul of that particular pers person. Um, the existing, existing doctrines may be applied in particular situations in the life of a church, in the life of an individual, in the life of a family, in the life of people. Now, of course, there's great danger in the use of prophecy in those ways because it could be used to manipulate people. Um, but just before we get on to that manipulation, you see, what I'm saying is based on the reality of God speaking today. And there are too many people who don't see God speaking today. They don't believe that God can speak today. But uh, God does speak today. Do you expect answers to prayer? You've prayed for something to happen. Do you expect to see God answering prayer? What about if you pray for guidance? Some people think you shouldn't ever pray for guidance. What are we supposed to do in a particular situation? And yet all the great prayers through history... Uh, and in the Bible, often refer to people who are praying for guidance. Nehemiah, his quick arrow prayer going up because he, he needs uh, wisdom in how to speak uh, to the king in his situation. Uh, these are, uh, do you not believe that those sort of prayers can happen today? Um, is there nothing to learn from such things? Are your prayers, therefore, as vain as the unbelievers? Well, that's not the case. And what we need to do is, uh, again, just go back to Scripture so that we can see what uh, Scripture has to say on this. Back to 1 Corinthians 14. And we read here in verse uh, 29, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Okay, so we need to let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Now, what is this weighing? And who is weighing? It's very difficult, actually, from the context here to say. You might say, well, the others must refer to other prophets. It could be that that is the case. It could also be, however, that those others are elders of the church, uh, people who are mature. But then the prophets themselves should be people who are mature. But this weighing is clearly judging what's just been said. One obvious judgment is to look at Scripture. Because again, if the prophecy is adding to Scripture, it's not correct. It's a false prophecy. There is going to be nothing adding to Scripture. It's more, it's going to be in the nature of something being applied to someone or something. Scriptural principles. The Holy Spirit isn't going to tell you anything new, doctrinally, but he is going to make application to people's hearts. You see, even cessationists believe that happens. They believe that... Um, God shows them new things over a period of time. They actually not that not that uh, they're new from Scripture, but that more of Scripture becomes understandable to them as the Holy Spirit causes us to mature. And uh, you know, so this weighing is important. But here's another question that I need to ask: What about those prophecies where they are weighed, and then the prophecy is found not to be correct? Um. The, the others uh, say that this prophecy is not really from the Holy Spirit. What are you going to do with that prophet? Now, it's not very clear, really, from Scripture what they think should happen here. 
um, I'm just going to be looking this up now in um, on my on um, computer Bible while I'm uh, talking about this. By the way, I use eSword if you're interested. I've got a lot of new modules downloaded, um, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But here we go. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So what happens to the prophet who is saying something that everyone else decides is not correct? Do we take him out and stone him? And I've not actually come across any cessationist who says that they should. Um, rather, they would have said that you would that uh, they, this should be discounted. The church at this time should have discounted the prophecy, but not that that person who's given the prophecy is taken out and stoned. Now, you see, as soon as you have that concession, which is very important, and I agree with that concession, by the way, it means that even the cessationists have conceded that there was one point in history during New Testament times, while the New Testament was being written, there was a point in history where prophecies were given and an incorrect prophecy did not result in the prophet being stoned. Now that is in direct contrast to what is said in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, for example, chapter 13, verse 5, we read, The prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death referring to a prophet who has said something wrong and uh, we go on to read in chapter 18 verses 20 to 22 the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that i have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods that same prophet shall die and if you say in your heart how may we know that that the word how may we know the word that the lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the lord if the word does not come to pass or come true that's a word that the lord has not spoken the prophet has spoken it presumptuously you need not be afraid of him but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that i have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods that same prophet shall die Okay, this is serious stuff. The Old Testament prophets, if they were saying something that was incorrect, we're reading that they should die. But I don't come across those cessationists who say that that is what should, what should have happened in New Testament times when these prophets were um, giving prophecies and they were not correct. Rather that the elders or maybe the other prophets or whatever would weigh this and therefore the prophecy should be discounted. There would be a rebuke presumably for the person who given the prophecy but not death. And that you can see this as the case is in the case of the prophecies of Agabus which were clearly not quite correct. They, he, he was on to something that the Holy Spirit was saying but he got certain uh, mistakes and I'm going to go through that in detail because again I've heard some cessationists say well that's not the case. Agabus's prophecy was not incorrect. Well we will need to read it and when we study it in detail you'll find of course that there were elements of what he had to say that were not correct but Agabus was not put to death we find he pops up later and he prophesies again he prophesies more than once um, he was not put to death on the other hand um, the attitude of the Apostle Paul uh, was a rebuke for um, 
uh, Agabus because he, he, you know, he didn't receive everything that Agabus had said. And that's uh, also very important that the Apostle Paul could overrule that. Now, the Apostle Paul was the person who was speaking with the authority of Scripture. Okay? And Scripture is now finished. So we have the authoritative words of Scripture. And here's the issue, that the books of the New Testament were not written by prophets. The books of the Old Testament were. But again, the definition of prophet in the Old Testament is much narrower than the definition of prophecy in the New Testament, for good reason. In the New Testament, the people who were responsible for writing the books of the canon of Scripture were either apostles or people under apostolic authority. So, for example, Mark is probably not, we don't think he's an apostle, but he's writing under the authority of Peter. Luke is writing under the authority of Paul uh, and, and, and so on. So, uh, again, that is something that's worth going into. Now, the Apostle Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 14, makes clear that apostolic authority is more important, of greater significance than prophecy and that of course would not have been the case in the old testament nothing could be of greater significance than prophecy because we're reading we're getting the words of scripture that way and that is clearly not the case then in the new testament it's the apostle who's taken the place of prophecy in uh, verses 37 through 40 of first corinthians 14 we read if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual he should acknowledge that the things i am writing that's what paul is saying I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. His prophetic gift is not recognized, in other words, because he's not accepting the apostleship of Paul. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let's underline those phrases again. Paul says, earnestly desire to prophesy until the canon of scripture is closed doesn't say that because as we've pointed out in 1st Corinthians 13 the gifts are not to cease until the Lord Jesus Christ returns so we're earnestly to desire to prophesy but not to have apostolic authority because it's uh, the apostolic authority is over uh, the canon of scripture is finished and therefore to put ourselves under the apostolic authority we're not listening to a man Paul we are reading his words and we're reading the words of um the inspired by the holy spirit throughout the entire 66 books of the bible and that's the apostolic authority that is greater than the new testament gift of prophecy so because there's this difference between uh the act of prophecy in the new testament um, it shows that, uh, that that sort of prophecy, which is a lower level of prophecy than Old Testament prophecy, that sort of prophecy can continue without causing any damage to Scripture. Now, of course, there have always been false prophets and there have always been false books of the Bible and things of that sort. And there will be people who will claim to be able to give you new doctrine by um, giving prophetic words. But again, when we're weighing that, we are immediately seeing that they are wrong. And yet, even then, uh, cessationists want that, uh, those false prophecies to be roundly rebuked, quite rightly, and I agree with them on that, such prophecies should be rebuked. But I don't hear them arguing for the stoning of those prophets. 
and the reason would be uh, that uh, they they have conceded that there was a difference in the quality of prophecy in New Testament times than in the Old Testament times. And so our argument, therefore, is back to 1 Corinthians 13. It's about when this New Testament prophetic gift ends. And as I said, it's very clear that that is at the end of the age as Jesus returns, not at some uh, at the closing of the canon of Scripture, when the last word of the last book of the Bible to be written um, came about. Again, it's not because I'm saying that the canon of Scripture is not closed. The canon of Scripture is most definitely closed. But um, we have to acknowledge, we have to understand that there is a difference between what prophecy is doing in the New Testament, which is under that biblical apostolic authority, of a lesser kind than that, not giving new doctrine, but simply making applications in personal lives, in personal areas. There are so many other reasons that I can give you why um, prophecy in the New Testament is different from prophecy in the Old Testament and why prophecy in the New Testament is not the same as preaching. I happen to be one of those people, you might call me old-fashioned, I would say I'm simply biblical, who thinks that um, the preaching of the word is a task that God has given to men, not to women. There are reasons for that. Some of you may be deeply offended by that, and, you know, I don't care. It's what Scripture says. But Scripture does give clear guidelines for what women are to do if they prophesy. You see? Prophecy, therefore, cannot be the same as preaching because you've got guidelines that are saying women cannot teach and preach, but we're being told that they can prophesy. Therefore, prophecy is not the same as the preaching of the word. It doesn't have that same importance. It's at a lesser level than that, and it is not a revelatory gift. And that is on that basis that so many people have said, well, we've got, we can't have prophecy, we can't have tongues anymore because they're revelatory gifts. No, they're not. They are not revelatory gifts. They're gifts of the Spirit uh, who is applying what the closed canon of Scripture is saying, but applying that in personal ways uh, to individual people or to individual families or to individual churches or even to a nation. Well, I think that will uh, be enough on that subject for now. Okay, let's move well, on. Well, good to continuity else. would suggest that I should be wearing the same shirt as I was wearing in the first part of this recording, but I'm not. Okay, those of you watching on video will see that. Um, I, it's in the laundry somewhere. I'm sorry. I'm not going to get it out and wear a dirty shirt. Um, anyway, uh, we've waited two days to uh, complete this recording, but. Um, uh, I was reflecting the other day about, you know, it is uh, October now and it's the fall. Uh, it's the fall season or as, you know, we Brits call it autumn. You know, we have spring, summer, autumn, winter. Spring, summer, fall and winter here in America. And fall is a beautiful time of year. Uh, I love spring, you know, when you get the flowers out. But in many ways, I actually like autumn better because they, it's not a time of death, really. The bright colours of the leaves as they are getting ready to fall from the trees is just absolutely wonderful. And uh, people always say that um, fall in New England is uh, the best you can get in the world. I always used to enjoy uh, the autumn in, in England, but um, fall in New England? I don't know. I've never been to New England. Um, I've certainly not been there in the fall, but I've not been there at all. But I can tell you that here in the Pacific Northwest, 
the colours are superb. They are more vivid than I remember from back in England. It's it's absolutely beautiful. I love it here. It was very nice living in Leicestershire, in, uh, in uh, Littlethorpe in Leicestershire in uh, the autumn. Lots of trees around. There's loads of trees around here. Uh, around Lake Ponderay and so some of the uh, pictures that you're seeing on the screen uh, are pictures I took on a short walk around uh, uh, just a, a mile or two of the co of the um, the coast it is a coast really of um, Lake Ponderay you know I've never lived so far away from the sea as I do now I you know it's a big country the United States you can be a long way from the sea and I've been a long way from the sea and I've visited certain parts of the country, but I've never lived as far away from the sea as now. Um, the second furthest I lived away from the sea was actually when I lived in Leicestershire, where it was it took you three hours to drive to the coast. It was more or less in the middle of England, and it took three hours to drive to uh, the uh, uh, North Norfolk coast, which is the closest coast. Um, uh, still doable in a day trip. It's not doable in a day trip to get to the coast here. It's a beautiful coast. It's the same coast. The close, closest coast to me is the same coast that would have been closest when I lived in Castle Rock in Washington. But there it was just over an hour to get to, uh, perhaps between an hour and an hour and a half, depending on traffic, uh, to get to the uh, beautiful Washington coast. Um, uh, particularly on the Long Beach Peninsula. That's Long Beach, Washington, not Long Beach, California. Long Beach, Washington is, is much prettier. Uh, it would take me about seven hours to get there from here. I know that. So it's a long way. Uh, it is my closest beach, but in many ways it doesn't matter because there is a coastline here. There's a large lake, um, uh, Ponderay Lake. It's beautiful and it's lovely to uh, go and see spots here. So there is a very watery atmosphere in this area and it's a lovely place to live. Well, having pontificated on that, uh, it's time to pontificate on other issues now. Um, since I did my last podcast, of course, um, Queen Elizabeth II has died and I recorded some of my thoughts um, while sitting down by the river, the Ponderay River. Uh, so again, beautiful scenery you're now going to see behind me as I uh, talk a little bit about the constitutional issues in the United Kingdom following the death of Queen Elizabeth II. So since I videoed the last podcast, uh, of course we've um, had the death of Queen Elizabeth II since then. And um, really I wanted to comment at the time, but uh, you know I just never got round to filming things. Actually I did film a, a very short um, thing about the, uh, the Queen's death. Um, I'd better watch it through again at some point. Maybe it might be appropriate to show it on another occasion, but... Uh, I, I said things that I was going to do and I haven't done any of those things that I said I was going to do in the <clears throat> in the video so I haven't put the uh, the short video online um, but there it is the the Queen's gone now <clears throat> I'm quite surprised at how much that affected me okay in the, um, in the store where I work, a lot of people came in and they said, oh, commiserations on the death of the Queen and, and so on, and, and were very kind about it. And you know, I thought, it did actually affect me. Um, probably the, uh, the day after I'd heard, and I, I sort of reflected on it, I did actually shed a few tears. I'm not ashamed to say that. And why would I do that? I don't live in the United Kingdom. Um... 
I live in the United States. I am very happy here in the United States. I'm uh, seeking citizenship. Um, I don't intend ever to go back to Britain to live. <clears throat> this is my country uh, now and um, I love it here. Why would I mourn the Queen passing? And it's mainly, I, I've sort of looked at it and I thought, well, it's partly her individual personality um, rather than the office. And, of course, the fact as well that I've known nothing else. The Queen's reign is the longest reign that there has ever been in British history. Um, <clears throat> 70 years. This year, in fact, was the Platinum Jubilee. And there's never been a Platinum Jubilee before. Uh, she was 96 years old. Uh, and... So she was just at the end of her 25th year of life when she came to the throne. Just a girl in her mid-twenties. Um, already married, of course, and had two small children. But basically just a girl. And that was 1952. And I, you know, I am an old man. Yeah, I'm 61 years old. But that means that I've never known anything else. On the grounds that you probably have to be, let's say, about 12 years old before you're really aware of what's going on around in the world. <clears throat> Perhaps a, a little bit aware before that. Um, excuse me, I'm just going to uh, pause this a moment. So, yeah, as I was saying, you know, I was born in... Uh, uh, I was just arguing that you have to be about 12 years old, really, to be aware of what's going on. That means, then, you know, since the Queen was, uh, had reigned for 70 years, you would really probably have to be 82 years old to have been aware of how things were um, under a previous monarchy. <laughs> uh, it's extraordinary. Um, and, of course, the fact that we've had a queen, a queen regnant, for so long is uh, also unusual. Uh, and yet, you know, two of the longest, the the, probably the two longest reigning monarchs are both queens regnant, uh, Queen Elizabeth II and Queen Victoria. So you can say a large proportion of the recent past has been with queens regnant, and yet still it is actually an anomaly, a queen regnant. There have been famous Queen Regnants in the past. Everybody knows about Elizabeth I and so on. But um, British constitutional arrangements, which have actually been changed, so it wouldn't apply over the next, uh, after, after a few generations to come. But um, the, there's always been the law of pr um, primogeniture, um, which is that the next heir would be the old, the oldest male, uh, and you'd go through the male heirs. Okay, so for example, Queen Elizabeth's children were um, when they were all children. There was Charles, there was Anne, there was Andrew, there was Edward. But when uh, before any of them were married and had children, and so on to sort of extend the line of succession, the line of succession through my childhood, when 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 those um, princes and well princes and one princess 
what the line of succession would have been Charles, Andrew, Edward, then Anne, because of the law of primogeniture. Um, which has uh, has been changed for the future generations, but um, it's the case at the moment. And of course, Prince Charles only has sons, so it wouldn't apply there. Um, it the, it could have applied to uh, the, uh, the to the children of William and Kate, um, and in fact, they would be in the order of age now. Uh, that is George, Charlotte, and then Lu- and then Louis. Um, and, and there's, there's, a, there's a purpose in me sort of going through this sort of constitutional arrangement, okay? Um, but you see, for the next gen- few generations, we've got we've now got King Charles. He was the heir to the throne, uh, so he's now king. And then we've got uh, after that, uh, there'd be uh, Prince William, um, who was Duke of Cambridge, still is Duke of Cambridge. He's now also Duke of Cornwall, and he's also Prince of Wales. He has those titles that used to belong to uh, Charles. Uh, so he's next, and he's now the uh, presumptive. And then after that, you would have uh, um, Prince George. And so that's the line of succession. Uh, okay. Um, and it is possible to work out that line of succession, but it's a little bit lengthy. Now, these are constitutional arrangements. And a lot of people have said, well, you know, why could the Queen not have uh, abdicated in favour of Prince William? Or shouldn't Charles abdicate in favour of Prince William? And what all you need to understand is that there is actually no constitutional arrangement for an abdication. It shouldn't really happen. And uh, now, of course, in the past, there were uh, changes of uh, monarchy and royal line by warfare. Um, but you see, uh, English monarchs, and then therefore British monarchs succeeding that line after the Union of the Crowns, um, are under the law. This this was, was not the case with many many other European royalties, you know, which is why you got situations in France and really what headed towards the revolution. Um, situations in France where the king is absolute, abso- absolute monarchy, uh, the divine right of kings. <clears throat> um, English kings do not have that divine right, uh, except in the sense, of course, that uh, it, it's it's believed that obviously they're they're, they're chosen by God, if as being sort of good Calvinist is a covenantal uh, reason for um, the head of state being uh, being that sense but um, it's it's not the sense of divine right in the sense that everything the king does is right the king is actually under the law and has been since the time of King Alfred okay which is uh, more than a thousand years ago it's pretty much 1500 years ago it's a long time and that's the way things are and of course, I've talked about King Alfred before and uh, on, on these podcasts, and it might be worth coming back to him just to remind you, because uh, Alfred, um, his book of the law, sometimes known as the Doom Book, his book of the law um, um, started with the quotations of the Ten Commandments and then the, uh, uh, the Book of the Covenant, the, uh, the administration of the laws taken from the Book of Deuteronomy. 
that's how uh, the Book of the Law started and puts that at the foundation of common law, which, by the way, is inherited by the United States. A lot of people assume in the United States that the laws go back to Magna Carta. And although that is true, they go back further than Magna Carta because the provisions of Magna Carta themselves are based on the Doombok. It all goes back to the Doombok of King Alfred the Great uh, in the middle of the first millennium. So, uh, yes, there, there were wars, um, wars of the roses and so on. They, uh, only one king ever tried to introduce the concept of the divine right of kings and became a despot, therefore. And that king was King Charles I. And that's what precipitated the Civil War. Oliver Cromwell did not actually want to get without the monarchy. He did not. He simply wanted the king to acknowledge that he was under the law. And the law was uh, uh, um, represented by Parliament, with uh, parliamentary representation. And that's basically how King Alfred had it. Uh, he created what was the proto-Parliament, known as the Wotan, um, and uh, that is uh, that is how uh, the country was meant to be governed. So Charles I uh, ha believed in the divine right of kings, and uh, that led to the clash with Parliament. So that's what precipitated the civil war. Char um, Oliver Cromwell was not seeking to make a republic, although that is basically what happened for a brief period of time. But it also explains why Cromwell really found it very difficult to work out how England should be governed afterwards and how eventually you have the restoration of the monarchy. The restoration of the monarchy, though, wasn't putting things back the way they were under Charles I. The restoration of the monarchy uh, was putting things back the way they had been prior to that, before, prior to the notion of the divine right of kings, back to Alfred's uh, code. Which brings me then to, uh, after the Civil War, into modern times, uh, there have only been two abdications. And what a lot of people don't realise is that abdication is not the whim of the king or the monarch. Abdication is by the will of Parliament. Okay, So the two abdications were when James II wanted to turn the country back to being Catholic. And that precipitated the Glorious Revolution. I think the date, if I get the date wrong, forgive me please, the date's around about 1680. I think, is it 1688? Um, can't remember, I've not got that quite there in my head. But the um, uh, Parliament forced the King to abdicate. The King did not want to abdicate. Uh, that's when they changed the accession arrangements so that instead of the um, nearest male heir and thereafter female heir, becoming a monarch, uh, it was to be the nearest male heir and thereafter female heir who were Protestant. Okay, so the surprising thing there is that it wasn't really meant to be King William III who took over, although he was accepted by Parliament, but it was his wife, because his wife was the younger sister of James II. That's how it happened. So you had Charles II, then his younger brother James II, and um, uh, but then James II's line was removed because of his Catholicism. So the next Protestant heir would be Queen Mary II, which is why, uh, uniquely in English history, you had a joint crown. Uh, William III was offered the crown on the basis of his wife, um, 
uh, uh, Mary II. So you had William III, Mary II, and the understanding was that it was going to pass through Mary's descendants afterwards, so it wouldn't have passed to any... Uh, you know, if, if Mary had died, which she did, she predeceased William III, but it wasn't possible if William III had got married again. It wouldn't have been possible for his... Um, uh, future children to be. Uh, it was only possible for the children of uh, his marriage to Mary. That was the way Parliament decided it. Parliament therefore decided the succession. That was the first abdication. The second abdication was 1936, the famous abdication of Edward VIII. And Parliament was actually very reluctant to pass that. It was a close-run thing. The king wanted to abdicate. He went to broadcast that he wished to abdicate. But Parliament had to be given permission. And Parliament wasn't really minded to give permission. It was perfectly possible. Uh, this is why it was a crisis. This is why it was a constitutional crisis. It was perfectly possible that Parliament could have said, no, you're stuck with this. You cannot marry Wallace Simpson and uh, you have to remain king. They could have done that. Well, bye. Uh, they eventually allowed that abdication. But you see how a painful procedure that is. It is not a regular constitutional arrangement. It's not something someone can decide at whim, as the Dutch royal family can. Uh, you know, where you can have a monarch emeritus there in, in the Netherlands. You can't have that in Britain. And I was trying to explain why having a queen regnant was unusual. And I've, I've already talked about the uh, law of primogeniture, um, so, generally speaking, it should be the oldest male heir. Well, not generally speaking, it should be the oldest male heir. As I said, that law has been changed for the generation after Prince William. But uh, prior to that, it was a law of primogeniture, which means that you would have a king, and you would mostly have a king, the Queen, therefore, is a lesser title, normally speaking, and normally refers to the wife of the King. Okay? And there's been a lot of talk about uh, Camilla being Queen Consort, and a lot of official things, you know, they keep saying she is the Queen Consort, as if that's a different title from Queen. And it's not really, they're just emphasising that, understandably, so that you'll understand that her Queenship is because she is the wife of the King. Okay? The king is the monarch, uh, the queen is the wife of the monarch. That's how it works. Except, what do you do then if you've got a king who doesn't have any sons? And that was the case with King George VI, the previous monarch, who died in 1952. Because King George VI didn't have any sons. He had two daughters, Elizabeth and Margaret. Elizabeth was the older, so she became queen, as in queen regnant, which meant that she's the equivalent of a king. She was reigning, but it would be odd to call a woman king. That's, that's the only reason. So, you see, we've had all this time. One of my colleagues asked me, what about the king? Didn't he die a couple of years ago? Um, Prince Philip was never the king. Okay, so you need to understand that Prince Philip was never the king. He was the husband of the queen. Um, the Queen was Queen by right, and there wasn't an offer of the crown to Philip. That was a unique thing because of the circumstances of the Glorious Revolution, a one-off um, proclaimed by Parliament that did, was not repeated again after that. So that, for example, after William and Mary, you had Queen Anne, um, 
Do you know, I can't remember whether Queen Anna had a husband or not. Isn't that dreadful? I can't remember. <laughs> that's a period of history that's just gone blank to me. It's not one that we know much about. Certainly we can come to Queen Victoria, okay, who was, uh, uh, had no brothers. And so she came into the line of succession without any brothers. It was made Queen Regnant and she had a husband, okay, Prince Albert. Uh, so he was the prince consort. He was not king, despite coming from a royal family. Likewise, of course, Prince Philip came from a royal family. He was from the Greek royal family. He wasn't the main heir to the Greek um, um, royal family. Um, so uh, he couldn't be described as king. Uh, and he, wouldn't, he couldn't have been king of England anyway, even if he'd been king of the Hellenes, which he wasn't. He wasn't that high uh, in the line of, uh, of um, the royal family, of the Greek royal family. So I hope that explains a little bit why there was a queen, uh, why, despite the fact we've known nothing but a queen for all our lifetimes of the overwhelming majority, um, we've known nothing else. And that explains to some extent why I was a bit emotional about it. Now, the queen, I've enjoyed her Christmas broadcasts uh, where she's felt able to say things herself. Uh, she's really had a large input into what's said there. And it's quite clear from things that she said in those broadcasts that she was a personal Christian. She's therefore gone to be in glory. A number of people who met her and conversed with her many times, who themselves personal Christians, even though I might have had certain theological differences with them, I think particularly of John Stott, and J.I. Packer, two prominent evangelical Anglican clergymen of the past, and also Billy Graham um, met with the Queen many times during his missions to Britain in the 1950s, and was also uh, quite certain that she was a personal Christian, a born-again Christian. Um, so and I think that came out in the funeral for, uh, uh, for the Queen as well, when you looked at the various readings that she had deliberately chosen because she chose, she uh, uh, scripted that funeral service before her death. It's been in place for a while. And <clears throat> the things that she chose, the hymns that she chose, and so on, they're gospel-centered things. Um, and I know there's a lot of people who said, well, there's various bills that she shouldn't have signed. And I, I wish that she hadn't. I wish that she could have stood up uh, and not signed, say, the Abortion Act and uh, the uh, Same-Sex Marriage Act. I, I wish that she... Those are failings, okay? Those are failings. And when we get to heaven, I will have some major failings that will be pointed out to me and everyone will see about them. Big major failings, but I'm still going to be in heaven, okay? Because they are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those were failings. That's not beats about the bush. They were failings of the Queen. And they're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ because she was a repentant sinner. And even during her Christian life, therefore, didn't get things right all the time and made those two major blunders in signing two laws. She never refused to sign a single law that was placed to her. And maybe she should have uh, raised some. But then I don't know what objections were raised in private with the Prime Ministers of the day. 
Did she speak on the subject to Harold Wilson at the time of the abortion act? Did she speak on the subject to David Cameron at the time of the same-sex marriage act? I don't know. I don't know. We'll know in eternity. One thing I do know is that she will be there in eternity. Which brings us to King Charles III. And constitutionally, he is the king. At the moment, I'm still a UK citizen, but I have no intention of remaining so. And that's not in reaction, because I had already decided, under the reign of someone I consider to be a good, godly queen, I'd already decided that, um, personally, I was going to be an American citizen. Uh, I'm hoping, praying that that will uh, come about in in due time. And... uh, this is where I intend to stay. That's not to say that I think there's not a lot of things wrong with uh, the way that this country is governed too. You know I do. But uh, I, I love being here. I love the American people. Uh, this is where I am. This is where I will stay. Um, so that having been said, we perhaps need to consider King Charles and think about his future reign and what we can make of that. And there's a lot to say on that subject. And I've spoken about Charles before when he was Prince of Wales. I've spoken about him. And I'll just basically introduce the point at the moment because, you see, some years ago, Charles did come out with a manifesto for his rule. He did. And so many people haven't picked up on that. But he wrote a major book called Harmony, in which he nailed his colours to the mast as a globalist, as a member of the Bilderberg Group, as a a globalist, someone who's in favour of the Great Reset, somebody who is in favour of uh, all the... um, He talks a lot about sustainable development because he's in league with the basic climate change stuff and all the nonsense that's spoken about that. So I think we ought to examine that. We ought to have a look at what he says in his book Harmony because that is going to influence his reign and there are a lot of things to be very, very disturbed about there as uh, we head into the future. Uh, Constitutionally he has to be king, that's the way that constitution works, there have been bad kings in England's past, that's the way things have to work and before you criticise that don't forget there have been bad precedents. You think it's right for them to be chosen by uh, an election, a secondary election of course using a a, um, an electoral college I don't have a problem with that um, but the only biblical form of government for a country is a, is a monarchy uh, now I don't you know if you, if you had a situation like uh, the United States was set up by that would be ideal where um, you've got people who pray and you've got people who uh, um, oh dear me you see I don't know enough from my American history. Um, which one was it who said that the Constitution was um, meant for a religious people? And by that, didn't mean just any religion, meant specifically Christian, because in those days, you know, 200 years ago, you're saying religious, you meant Christian. Uh, that it was meant for a religious and moral people, and it was totally unsuitable for anyone, any other. I can't remember which of the founding fathers said that. I'm sorry, but... Um, that is true. Um, the United States, as founded, could be a monarchy in the sense that they would look towards Jesus as the only king. Um, 
and that's the way it was meant to be, that's not the way it is today. And uh, in the same way, I can criticise the new monarch while accepting he has the constitutional right to rule, because that's the way things have been laid down for 1,500 years, and I don't particularly agree with necessarily overturning those things that God has put in place for that length of time. As I said, there have been bad kings in the past. Um, there have been major problems with uh, mon with uh, British monarchs in the past, but you still the uh, the choice of God in covenant relationship is, uh, you know, there have been times when God has judged Britain through the monarch that's been on the throne. That's definitely been the case, and maybe the slippage of the United Kingdom uh, away from the gospel of Jesus Christ over the last several decades means that God is now punishing the United Kingdom with um, the reign of King Charles III, who's, who's to say. But let's examine that uh, another time. I've spent about four minutes talking about that. Well, it's just, the clock's just gone on to five minutes talking about that now. Uh, I don't think I'll say any more on that in, in the moment, but I think we'll come back to that. So I'll just wind up that particular bit and say, and try and say that's, hopefully I've expressed why I mourned the Queen's passing, the passing of an era, how I see the succession as being uh, constitutionally valid and constitutionally right, and I'm pointing you towards the fact that I'm going to have some specific criticisms of um, the new King, and as also by implication with the new Prince of Wales as well, who shares his father's views. Okay, thank you for listening to that section. Let's go back to... Um, I think what we'll uh, move on to now will be to have a look at the book of Genesis again. Let's go back to Genesis and uh, pick up where we had left off before. We're going to be looking at the, um, the treaty that Abraham made with Abimelech. Okay, a bit of melodic music now. I don't know whether I've recorded this one before. Um, it's Over the Hills and Far Away. Because sometimes people have said, oh, can you play over the hills and far away? Um, and for some reason they seem disappointed if I uh, actually get the instrument out and start playing a tune. Uh, they said, oh, well, I thought you were going to go and play over the hills and far away. Here it goes. <laughs> music does remind me that I have started doing some um, events and things uh, not playing the melodica playing the piano and singing and I did my first one on uh, September the 28th at the Ponderay winery in um, Sandpoints 
Idaho. Uh, that was on Wednesday, September the 28th. That went down very well. And so I'm trying to do a number of other things. And uh, therefore, I've got a website um, that uh, you may want to look at, which is paultaylorpianomusic.com. That's paultaylorpianomusic.com. And you can fill in a form there to, uh, or find my number to uh, be able to make bookings. I have received two more bookings from that. So if you're in the North Idaho area, please put in uh, Wednesday, February the 1st and Wednesday, March the 29th into your journals, um, into your calendars. Uh, both events will be in the, um, the lounge at the uh, Ponderé Winery and uh, will take place from five o'clock through seven o'clock. Um, um, it's free to, uh, to come in and they do serve good food and, um, and uh, good drinks. So that is, um, you'll find the details when I get around to putting the uh, Paul Taylor piano music.com. Um, also looking on that website to how I can get on with doing some virtual concerts uh, so that maybe you can uh, get me some bookings or, um, or, or uh, I can put on a concert and you get a tip, uh, a method of paying me probably through um, a uh, website, buy me a coffee, that, probably that one will work, but we'll see how that works. And uh, while I'm on the subjects of websites, if you want to support these podcasts, then please head over to Subscribestar or Locals or Substack and I can be uh, supported on all those places. Uh, you need an F in my name, Paul F. Taylor. It's Subscribestar.com forward slash Paul F. Taylor or it's paulftaylor.locals.com or it's paulftaylor.substack.com. Any of those three places and you'll be able to find the means of financially supporting these podcasts um, by a monthly, small monthly subscription. Really, from most of you, all I'm looking for is $5 a month. $5 a month. That's the cost of one cup of coffee a month. Uh, if you'd like to give that cup of coffee or the price of it to me instead, then please uh, head over to one of those three sites. And uh, uh, because obviously, although I want these, uh, the message from these podcasts to get out, freedom is not free and I need uh, the support to be able to uh, keep the equipment up to date. I do need a new laptop pretty soon. This one's more or less full. Uh, and I either need to find the finance to upgrade it or get a new one. I'll probably try and upgrade it. It's a little bit less, but it's still going to be a couple of hundred dollars in order to do that. So uh, if you can help with that, uh, then those are the three places. Subscribestar.com forward slash Paul F. Taylor or paulftaylor.locals.com or paulftaylor.substack.com. Okay, now let's get to looking at briefly... Um, um, a little bit back uh, of going back to Genesis. That's our, our next uh, port of call. Um, let's get back to Genesis. Very important to do. Well, that. let's get back to Genesis chapter twenty-one, and uh, we've covered uh, the first two major portions of this over the last couple of sessions. We covered the birth of Isaac, and uh, we covered the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael, and finally, just a little section here now, which we will not need to spend a lot of time on. Uh, to do with the Treaty of Beersheba. That's the treaty between Abraham and Abimelech. And I will be looking and basically quoting pretty much uh, uh, um, word for word what uh, I wrote earlier in my book, which is called About Genesis. It's volume two, 
about Genesis Volume 2. And I do want to mention to you that you can get this uh, pretty easily online, um, as well as a Kindle version and as well as a paperback version. You can get an, an independent open source EPUB book version that you can read through applications like Lib um, uh, Libraria, which is what I use. Um, so I, I, I use that on my tablet. That's a free um, app on the tablet. And uh, you can get this book then from the website allaboutbooks.store at any price you choose to pay for it because I want to get this out into as many hands as possible. So that's the least expensive way of getting um, this particular uh, book. You pay what you like. Uh, um, there is a minimum, the minimum of one dollar, okay? Uh, so you'll have to make some sort of transaction, but it's, it's basically to get this out into your hands as easily as possible. So we're looking then at the uh, last section of Genesis chapter 21. As I said, it is to do with the um, treaty at Beersheba. And we just I just need to bring my Bible up at that point so that you can see it. Um, let's go into there. Let's check that I've got, yeah, that I've got the right section up there. So let's read together uh, the bit that we're, we're looking at, which is at the end of the chapter. It's the treaty with Abimelech from verse 22 onwards. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly um, with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water, that when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hands, so that this one may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned for many days in the land of the Philistines. Um, so, uh, so there we have uh, uh, that um, reading there. And what becomes apparent is that um, we've said that Abimelech is someone who knows a bit about God. Um, so you clearly see the time of the Canaanites uh, of whom the Philistines are a group has not come yet therefore that means that Abraham is not going to be taking over the land and of course he never does in his lifetime it's his descendants who will eventually take over the land once the wickedness of the uh, Canaanites has come to full fruition but Abraham's clearly become known as a very important leader uh, Abimelech, who's the king of the Philistines, he once again wants to meet with Abraham. And that's remarkable because although Abraham's now living in the land of promise, he doesn't actually own a square inch of it at this particular point. 
And that probably helps to emphasize to us that we do not in our present sojourn actually own anything. Anything we have belongs to God. And Abimelech comes to meet Abraham, but he brings along with him Phicol, his army chief. Now, we have already discussed that Abimelech, though he's a pagan, had at least some knowledge of the true God who had visited him in, in a dream when he'd taken Sarah under the illusion that she was not Abraham's wife. Now, this was a deception on Abraham's part, and it underlines why Abimelech wanted evidence that Abraham would not deceive him again. He wants a treaty, but he wants a witness to that treaty. Now, in this world, God's people are capable of sinful deceptions and lies, and even multiple instances of the same lie, which is what we've got here with one of the most important and godly men in the Bible. And yet, even this wonderful godly man, who is in many ways a type of God the Father, nevertheless has deceived Abimelech so badly in the past that Abimelech needs a witness. Now, isn't that um, an indictment on God's people that there are some occasions where people in the world can't trust us because of what we've done? Uh, we're not going to excuse lying behavior then, but it helps us all the more to understand the wonderful forgiveness that we have in Christ, that this man, the man who had been lied against, nevertheless recognized that God was with Abraham. So the order of the next events is important. Abraham agreed to the treaty first, before he mentioned the well that some of Abimelech's men had taken. Now that's important, because if he'd mentioned the well first, Abimelech would have assumed that the treaty was unconditional. But Abraham gave his word before the Lord, and then was able to use the treaty that was all but signed to right a wrong. No doubt Abimelech told the truth when he said he had no prior knowledge of the theft, and we can assume that he put this right as part of the treaty. After this, Abraham sealed the treaty with the gift of sheep and oxen. So the treaty was complete, and immediately after that, Abraham set apart seven ewes. Why did he do that? Well, there are a number of layers here. Male rams would be used for sacrifice, probably being cut in half, so that Abraham and Abimelech could walk between them. Uh, that was their equivalent of signing a document, and it's a sort of uh, signature, if you like, that we've already looked at uh, when God did that with Abraham. Of course, in that particular covenant, it was only God who went between the cut pieces, because it's a one-sided covenant. But in normal covenants, they would cut the animals, and they were, uh, both parties to the treaty would walk between them, invoking their respective God. Um, only one God, of course, of which is genuine. But uh, this uh, treaty binds Abraham because he does it before the one true God. So ewes would not be used for the sacrifice. They'd be used for milk and for breeding. And it's still the case, actually, today. A lot of us in the West don't realise this. We, you know, we use cow's milk so much. And some of you know about using goat's milk as an alternative. Yet the animal that is used throughout most of the world for milk is actually sheep used milk is the most common milk throughout the world uh, those of us in western countries like britain and america we don't follow that you can't really buy used milk in the uh, in the stores but in most of the world that is the most common milk and it certainly was in abraham's time so uh, they'd be used for milk and breeding abraham was therefore giving a very personal gift to abimelech a very personal gift to abimelech and that's important because remember Abraham has personally offended Abimelech 
so he's going beyond the signing of a treaty here. It's an act of friendship. Abimelech wants this treaty, but he's wary and he has to bring Phicol with him. The treaty is signed. It includes the stuff about the well. That's a wrong that's been righted. Now the treaty is over. And at this point, Abraham gives a personal gift that is not part of the treaty. It's a gift of friendship. And he says, moreover, it's a witness. It's a witness because the root of the Hebrew for the number seven is very similar to, to the root of the Hebrew for oath. And in fact, the name Beersheba can mean well of the seven or well of the oath because those uh, two words are very strongly aligned. Abraham was probably using both meanings in order to make a point. So did Abraham know that this well was where God had spoken an oath to Hagar? Probably not. But the use of this very same place as a means of this treaty is very significant, uh, especially as Beersheba is a place where that will meet again in history. After the departure of the Philistine leaders, Abraham worshipped the Lord and he refers to him as El Olam, the everlasting God. Previous names for God that we've seen given in Genesis of it have been El Elyon, God Most High, and El Shaddai, the Almighty God. As we've seen before, Abraham's immediate response is to worship God. He's a flawed man. We've seen that. Even this treaty has, has brought out the fact that Abraham is a flawed man, such that somebody else doing a treaty with him needs a witness. But despite his flaws, he is recognised as a man of God. So there's good and bad there in his character. And that's because of his close walk with God. Despite being a flawed man, his first response is always to worship God. And one of the fruits of his faithfulness is that he was able to travel safely and freely among the Philistines for many days. Over the last couple of uh, sessions, while we've been looking through uh, Genesis 21, we've seen God keeping his promise to Abraham after long years of waiting. The child of promise was born. We also see that the child of the slave woman had to be expelled. We've seen that that was done prophetically, that those words uh, that Sarah spoke are used as words of scripture, uh, identified as words of, uh, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit himself when we get to the New Testament. And we see how a covenant can work, even if it's made with someone who doesn't belong to the Lord. We still bring God into that equation, or rather we publicly acknowledge that he is indeed there already. But we must acknowledge that fact. Well, I hope that's been useful. It's a short exposition this week uh, on um, Genesis 22. But we have taken quite a long time. This podcast is now well over an hour long and it's time that we stop that. So please remember again, please support me at um, subscribe, star, subscribestar.com forward slash Paul F. Taylor. Um, there's also locals, paulftaylor.locals.com. There's also substacks, paulftaylor.substacks.com. Uh, try that again, paulftaylor.substack.com. If you want to book me for uh, a musical session, then that is uh, paultaylorpianomusic.com. Um, this podcast is at Paul, uh, sorry, it's not at Paul, it's at proverbs1810.org. Uh, proverbs1810.org and you can find the Proverbs 1810 channel on Rumble where you'll be able to watch this video although if you're watching this video it probably means you've already found it but you can pass that on to other people thank you for listening to this program thank you for watching this program those of you doing so 
as I keep promising every week, I'll try and make the next one sooner, but it does take a lot of effort to get these podcasts together. And so if you can consider uh, supporting me, uh, it would be very welcome. Meanwhile, may God bless you. Thank you for being with me.